I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode, and you're listening to Recode Replay, powered by digital media. Now here's an interview from the stage of Code Media. Hello, everyone. I'm very excited to get a chance to interview Casey Wasserman. Casey, come on out. Casey is um, CEO of Wasserman. It used to be called Wasserman Media Group, um, but they recently rebranded to show just how global and massive um, they are representing um, athletes, sports talent. They represent about 1,500 athletes, including 100 NBA players and a ton of big brands, including Microsoft, Pepsi, Amex, for all sorts of sponsorship deals um, for live events. So, Casey, um, thanks for, uh, for talking to us today, giving us some insight into the future of sports. So, last night we heard from John Skipper, and he said he believes ESPN, the health of the TV bundle, it's all very strong, and sports will be a protected part of the TV bundle for a long time. Do you agree? Uh, I do. I think the bundle will evolve. I think there will be versions of a bundle, and I think there will be radically different bundlers. Uh, but I think the bundle is a matter of convenience and value for the customers. Uh, I think it's pretty clear. Um, I think the challenge for uh, media companies and, and brands like ESPN will be how do they replace those people who aren't accessing that content through a bundle? Uh, and that's where the direct-to-consumer piece comes in. So he, he said to me when I, I interviewed him last night that he wasn't going to be offering a direct-to-consumer app for some time. It could be three years, the basic model is going to be the same. Do you think it has to happen before then? Yeah, well, he may not offer an ESPN, all-inclusive, all-content direct-to-consumer app for three years. That's probably likely. But as part of his new deal with the NBA, they are creating a pay-per-view direct-to-consumer product. So I think they will do it in a specific and specialized way. They did it with the Cricket World Cup. Um, so I don't think uh, that ESPN selling direct-to-consumer some product with their brand on it is three years away. So this morning, Bob Bauman was on stage talking about going direct-to-consumer. They're going to be bidding for rights against ESPN. When you look at the changing landscape, more over-the-top options... Are you worried that that's going to depress prices and have a trickle-down effect to lower fees for your athletes? Uh, no. There's two things to keep in mind. One, uh, as this paradigm shift happens, whether it's over the next three or 30 years, and no one's quite sure, uh, sports will be probably the last and certainly the least affected. Uh, I say last because the rights deals are long-term. So their NFL rights are up in 2022. Uh, a lot of the cable distribution deals built on the backs of these right deals are long-term. Some of the college sports rights deals are 20 years. So the embedded nature of those deals means that the sports industry will have revenue streams guaranteed from these media companies for a long time. I say it's the least affected because it is the one part of the value chain that has proven to be effective over a long period of time. It is uh, predictable and unique and defensible in a world where nothing is. Um, it is the only kind of content where you also don't have to guess what people want to see. So if I told you, Julia, to build a business, uh, a content business based on professional basketball, you would know what rights to acquire. And once you had them, no one else could have them. And that's different than telling you to go build a business based on 30-minute uh, comedies where you'd have to go guess what people would like, create it from scratch, and hope it worked. Uh, you don't have that guesswork involved with sports, which is why the values have remained and will continue to remain so high. So far more limited assets, um, more unique assets. But what does all this mean for you? I mean, we're talking about millennials, shifting viewer patterns, cord nevers. What does all this mean for, for you, your athletes, your brands? Well, I think one part of it is I, I do believe that rights will continue to escalate because 
uh, it is the one thing that every kind of content platform can turn to uh, consistently to prove their business model and, and to sort of validate uh, their move to content. And so one, I think as fees increase, uh, the revenue streams continue to flow through to the athletes. And the second piece is the development of these broad reaching platforms uh, allow these athletes to connect directly with their consumers in different ways than they've ever been able to. Uh, you've always known that an athlete like Russell Westbrook had a huge audience, but now I don't have to guess at how big that audience is, I don't have to guess at who they are, and I don't have to try and figure out how to get to them. Uh, he can now get to them on their own, and he can now connect with those consumers directly and monetize that relationship in a meaningful way. How? How do you monetize that relationship? Well, um, whether it's, uh, uh, and we have done a few deals like this, and I know we were the first, Having the shoe companies pay those athletes to create content separate from their uh, endorsement deals, but from their media budgets to take those media budgets and use the athletes' reach uh, and their frequency to deliver an audience just like they would make a media buy, uh, except they're buying the media through the athlete on the athletes' channels. And that's a meaningful opportunity that's going to continue to grow. So it's basically like native advertising, but, in, but the content is... Authentic to the brand that they're already being so, endorsed. So give me an example for one of your athletes. Well, you know, Russell Westbrook um, uh, uh, doing uh, posts about Brand Jordan, his, his, uh, his shoe contract. Um, like posts on Instagram. And any of his platforms. His experience at All-Star Weekend um, taking over the Brand Jordan Snapchat. His, his reach is meaningful, and he can actually turn to a brand and guarantee that audience. Guarantee impressions. Guarantee number of uh, posts. Guarantee quality of content. Guarantee reach. And that's... Frank, that's what a television network does today. How much money can you make from that kind of business? A lot. I mean, how, how big a scale compared to getting a shoe deal? Well, at the top of the food chain, the shoe deals are big and getting bigger. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but at the lower end, the shoe deals are a lot smaller than people think, and the non-endemic deals are way smaller than people realize. And so I think the days of a brand signing up an athlete to a, uh, a long-term deal for exclusivity with nothing else around it are coming to an end. Um, we just did a deal with Ryan Sheckler and LG. They paid him a specific amount of money for a set period of time to produce content and distribute that content with guaranteed reach and distribution on his social channels. The money they paid him is as much as they would have paid him for a long-term deal. It came out of their media budgets, which brands are very happy to spend. They do have trouble understanding how to spend sponsorship dollars. And he did that, and it was exclusive for a defined period of time, and then he's free to go do what else he wants. And I think that is becoming the norm, and frankly, uh, we think that it's a huge opportunity for athletes. How many of your clients do those kinds of deals, and how many do you expect to down the road? Well, um, hundreds do those deals on a, on a yearly basis. And I, and I think over time, um, I wouldn't say all, because you know, there are some athletes who aren't, aren't ready for that, but it's an opportunity for all of them, certainly. And, uh, and our job is to make it easy uh, for the brands to understand what they're getting and how they're getting it and make it meaningful for them on the delivery side and then have the sort of research and data and insights to back it up and support what they're spending. Are there other opportunities in the shifting landscape to use technology to create new revenue streams for your, for your clients, whether it's brands or, or athletes? Sure. Look, I think, there are, I think you're, you're not far away from athletes getting paid different royalty streams if they become a direct-to-consumer sales channel as opposed to through Nike.com or UnderArmor.com or, or Adidas.com. I, th I think that uh, I think they, there are ways to create incentives for athletes to, um, to generate revenue for the brands and to be rewarded as such, and I think the time is now for that. 
So direct commerce, where do you see that happening? On Twitter, on Facebook, on their own websites? Look, all of the above. Any, com- any, any platform with lots of people uh, is a platform that our athletes should be taking advantage of. And, and frankly, commerce is a big opportunity. You have a particular focus on the NBA with, um, I, I believe, 100 NBA players who you've done deals for. NBA has a deal with Twitter, distributing clips, et cetera. What do you make of that deal? Well, I think the NBA has been extraordinary in its use and embrace of social media. They are by far the leader uh, in professional sports. Uh, they should be applauded for it. And I think you see the conversation around a weekend like you just had in the NBA All-Star, where you had uh, incredible moments in the dunk contest. You had an incredible um, and an exciting game. You had Kobe's last All-Star game. You had all those things happening. And the conversation, uh, you could have followed that entire experience on Twitter and gotten a pretty good sense of what it was. And that's because the NBA has embraced those channels. It's the only uh, truly global sport we have that's sort of natively American. And, uh, and I think it's created more opportunities. And those opportunities, in terms of exposure, just accrue to the teams, to the fans, to the athletes all the way through. Facebook has been making a big push to be more part of that public conversation. Do you, and they launched the sports stadium and all yeah. this stuff. Do you think they are going to be Twitter at this? They certainly have more users. Yeah, look, uh, I obviously played with a sports stadium uh, experience. Uh, it was okay. Um, I think it's got a long way to go. But ultimately, um, I think what is valuable about sports um, is not just the, the spoken word, but the video and the experience of seeing it. And so no one has done a great job of captivating um, a virtual experience around a sporting event um, that makes people feel like they're not missing out on something on another platform. Uh, and it's early days, and that will develop and continue. But look, uh, Snapchat stories and and, and Twitter moments, I think, have become really interesting ways to watch highlights of an event that didn't exist a couple of years ago. So a second ago, you said now it's possible to really keep on, up with what's going on with the game without watching TV, without being on any other platform, just to be there on your phone. So that means that those people could be not paying a cable, cable bill and also not contributing towards the ratings to help with advertising. What does all of that mean for what we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation, which is sort of the future of that traditional TV platform. Well, look, the ratings for an event are, the ratings in an event compared to the number of people who are watching or following it are, have always been a disconnect, right? So if the number of people watching a basketball game are on a weekend are three, four, five million people, there's a lot more people who have read about the game in uh, the newspaper, uh, who have watched highlights on SportsCenter, who have followed it now on social media. Uh, and what social media has done is made that audience bigger. Uh, so I would I'll, I'll actually tell you that the people watching are, are almost a completely different audience than the people following. And I think the real challenge if you, if the, that people haven't talked about for ESPN is how does SportsCenter evolve? I mean, SportsCenter is uh, what we all grew up on. It is, it is the thing everyone aspires to in the sports business outside of live programming. Uh, and so how does SportsCenter evolve to stay connected when you're not waiting until... 8 o'clock LA time to see the highlights when you've now gone on Twitter to see the highlights or Snapchat or Facebook or whatever the platform is. That's an interesting conversation to be had and an interesting challenge that, aren't, you know, that ESPN will have to handle and not a lot of people are talking about. So what's your prescription? What would your advice be? Well, uh, I don't get uh, to sit in John Skipper's seat, thankfully. Um, um, I, look, I think ESPN is in a really strong position because it owns a lot of the broadcast rights, and owning those broadcast rights are a wonderful first step to exploit those rights on a continual basis. Um, 
I don't know that that's going to exist always on an ESPN app or an ESPN controlled environment. And my guess is they're going to have to think about how they exploit that opportunity outside their, uh, their four walls uh, in a significant way. So what about Sports Center? In a land of ubiquitous data, <clears throat> you can get scores whenever, wherever you want. What should Sports Center be? Well, I mean, that's an experiment that they're with. I mean, what they're doing at night with Scott Van Pelt and making it more of a nightly show as opposed to just a sports show. Um, it will definitely have a place in society, but it may not serve the role it has in the past. And it's no different than, you know, used to watch headline news. I don't think headline news is even a channel anymore. So what it was doesn't mean it's what it's going to be, but ESPN as a brand is second to none in the sports business. Sports Center uh, is still the best version of what it does um, and how it continues to leverage that platform to tell its story to the fans all over the world is going to change. And when you look at what Bob Bauman is doing, bidding for sports rights against ESPN, looking for whatever content is available to roll together, to offer in an app to consumers sometime in the next couple of months, is that a threat? How big a threat? Um, and is that good for you because there are more buyers? Look, more buyers is always good. Is it a threat? I, I, I'm, it's not a threat because uh, unless something has happened that I don't know about, I don't think the baseball owners are giving bam, nor should they, blank check to acquire rights of their competitors so that they can make a small percentage of that. I think the baseball owners are very focused on building their business, and Bob has done an incredible job of building MLB.com as an asset for those owners. Uh, it's why there's been all the rumors about MLB getting spun, MLB.com mm -hmm. getting, or bam, getting spun off as a separate entity because it's, it's a hard thing for those owners to invest to acquire rights that aren't theirs. Uh, so is it a real threat? No. If it had a different capital structure and a different ownership structure, potentially, but there's, uh, ESPN has lots of rights for a long time, and, and I don't think that's going to change a whole lot, but more bidders is always a good thing. Um, what about Yahoo and now maybe Google getting into the bidding process for these sports rights? Um, yeah, that's going to happen. Uh, Yahoo did it uh, for one NFL game. Mm -hmm. um, How did that change the business? It didn't. Um, I didn't really understand it uh, from Yahoo's perspective. The NFL was experimenting, and I give them credit for taking that chance. And they look at that Thursday night, as, uh, as the league has said to Kafka on his podcast, right? That's their uh, risk equity is that Thursday night broadcast, and then they're going to take some chances. And, and that's something the NFL hasn't historically done, and so I, I applaud them for doing that. But one game once, not, not moving the needle. Um, and this concept of uh, streaming all the games or all Thursday night games, is interesting and certainly creates an interesting dynamic in 2022 when their rights are up because they will have developed at least one and maybe more bidders for their rights, which, as the NFL is pretty good at, is good for their business. So tell us a little bit about how your business is changing. Half of your business is representing athletes. The other half is working with brands. Yep. How have the needs of brands in, in terms of work, getting sponsorships, paying for sponsorships, changed over the past couple of years? Well, I think the, the evolution that you've seen is um, it can't just be about a sponsorship anymore. Um, and so as we think about the arc of a relationship between a brand and a property, that property could be an athlete, an event, uh, a league, a team, a building. Um, it starts with the right, the right strategy. Why is a brand engaging with that event, um, that sporting event, that food event, that fashion show? Um, uh, are they negotiating the rights uh, in a way that gives them the assets they need to make it valuable to their brand? Uh, are they activating it well? A lot of brands probably don't spend enough time thinking about or enough money activating that relationship because they focus all their time on getting the deal and spending their money on the deal and they haven't saved in their budget to activate. You can no longer just rely on that activation. Define, define activate. 
well, anyone who's been to a Super Bowl in, uh, in San Francisco last week or two weeks ago knows that you know, it was all about the activation. I mean, Super Bowl City and all the brands and all the money they spent to tell their story in a very real and physical way uh, beyond just their relationship with the league um, was a big part of their plan. Um, because frankly, these leagues, these teams, these buildings, uh, these events are platforms to tell their story. Uh, and those platforms can be local or they can be global, but they are a great way to tell the story and they're sort of a, uh, a rallying point to tell that story. And beyond activation, you have to amplify that now and that's where social media and, and ancillary spending on media comes in. So uh, it's important uh, to do that. And then obviously these brands have to measure um, um, that, the value that they created or didn't create and, and adjust going forward. And so our brand business now works across that entire arc. Uh, not every brand we work for works, uh, uses us for all those things, but certainly we have a lot of relationships that do and, and I think that's how brands are thinking about it. The other challenge for them is you know, sort of this delineation between non-working and working dollars. Um, non-working dollars are getting harder to justify and so the leagues have to adjust themselves to make sponsorships feel a lot more like working dollars than non-working dollars. What does that mean? Well, non-working dollars are you, you spend money for a sponsorship and that you don't really get anything for that. You get the right to do things for that, but you don't actually mm -hmm. get anything for that. And working dollars in the most traditional sense are paid media. Uh, and I think those lines are getting blurred and those opportunities are getting blurred and, and the set of rights that brands want uh, is getting blurred. For example, Microsoft, who's our client, you know, we negotiated their NFL sponsorship uh, as part of that, we got the right to put Surface tablets on the sidelines. Uh, that is a sponsorship that became working dollars very quickly because every NFL game uh, uh, on a year-round basis has both a, a center for the tablets to be stored and the tablets are part of the gameplay. So, you know, it became a very valuable platform for them to tell that story. And I don't think it's entirely coincidental that the Surface has gotten more traction in the marketplace since they started that deal. But it's also drawn a lot of attention and not all of it positive. I mean, I don't remember the exact incident, but there have been some questions about how authentic that, that partnership is for oh, it's, all it, the... It's authentic. Look, the, the, the game that it didn't work in the playoffs was mostly because the Wi-Fi didn't work. Uh, I mean, come on. Having said that, that's not, <laughs> that's not Microsoft's responsibility, unfortunately. Uh, they get the blame for it, and it shows you both the good and the bad side of those brand relationships, mm -hmm. um, uh, that they're going to get blamed no matter what. Um, but th those tablets have become an integral part of the game experience. Uh, and the only reason you can really defend that is because when they don't work, people are talking about them. If it wasn't authentic and uh, Wi-Fi broke and mm -hmm. they didn't work, people wouldn't care. Always blame the Wi-Fi. Um, looking at the sponsorships and the fact that you know, these products like the service are right there, you can't go and you know, TiVo through that moment, you can't go and get a snack because it's commercial break. Do you think that sponsorships are going to become more important in the era of cord shaving, DVRing, and everything else? Well, I mean, you know, there's always this talk about branded content. I mean, I, yeah. I laugh at that because sports is branded content. I mean, there are logos on jerseys. There are logos embedded into the, the field of play. I mean, it's not a big leap of faith. It is what it is. And, and so I think they have always been important in sports, and they will continue to be important in sports. Uh, there are other kinds of cultural kind of driven events that will, will leverage sponsorships to drive value. Um, but sponsors are going to be more demanding as they shouldn't. And our job is to make sure they're getting the value they want and the assets they need to, to create that relationship with the consumers to actually sell product. And you also help your athlete cli clients find brands that work for them. We recently saw this Manny Pacquiao <laughs> Nike deal. Yep. When you watch something like that, I assume he's not a client of yours. Nope. <laughs> when you watch something like that, what do you think? Uh, I think he wishes he didn't say that. Um, I mean, the, the whole world of controlling what athletes do and say is totally different now. 
It is, except for the fact that... Uh, you know, they have so many more opportunities. They to... have so many more opportunities both to do good and to, to make mistakes. Um, but to be clear, right, they wouldn't have gotten rid of Manny Pacquiao, which I applaud them for doing, if he wasn't actually a role model. And athletes are role models. Kids do look up to athletes, and they should. Um, and athletes have a responsibility, and I think it's important for the athletes to understand that, embrace that, and Manny Pacquiao took that for granted. Let's talk a little about the Olympics. You are leading the charge to try to get the Olympics in LA 2024. Yep. What are our chances? Well, there's four cities, so I guess at a minimum we have a 25% chance. Um, look, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's really a question for the International Olympic Committee of um, what direction they want to go in. Um, Paris, Rome, and Budapest are incredible cities. Um, and, and LA is an incredible city, but we're all very different from each other. And uh, what we have is clear. We have an incredible platform from which to do the Olympic Games. We have uh, an unprecedented sporting infrastructure. Uh, LA has gone, undergone a radical transformation in the last 30 years. Uh, we have the largest transportation infrastructure project under construction uh, in the United States today. Uh, and that's the platform for us to host the Olympics, and that is unparalleled. There is no risk in us delivering an Olympic Games at a world-class level. And then on top of that, you have a culture of creativity and innovation in California, in Los Angeles, in Southern California that is unprecedented in the world. You know, the Recode conferences are in Southern California for a reason. Not just the weather. Well, the weather too, but um, our slogan is follow the sun, so we do embrace <laughs> the weather uh, in Southern California. But it's not just because of the weather. Those companies aren't here by accident. Uh, Snapchat isn't in LA by accident, right? Apple, Google, Facebook, Twitter aren't in California by accident. SpaceX isn't in Southern California by accident. And, and we are all about what's next. Um, and we think that what's next is what's uh, at the right time, at the right place for the Olympic movement. And we hope they agree with us. But our job is for the next 18 months to make them understand that. And all the horror stories in past Olympics of exorbitant costs and questions about getting a return on those investments. Well, we don't, we don't have that in L.A. Uh, every venue exists. 97% of our venues exist, are being built regardless of the Olympics, or are temporary. We have to build one venue. Um, and that's unheard of. Our Olympic Village exists at UCLA. When President Thomas Bach, who's the head of the IOC, was in L.A. a couple weeks ago, I took him to a dorm room. And I just couldn't believe the quality of the dorm room. And it exists today. And it's only going to get better. Uh, and so the infrastructure between USC and UCLA the sporting venues we have is, is unparalleled. And then the other thing is because 1984 is recent enough that everyone remembers what an incredible and magical time it was in the city's history, that the people of LA embrace the opportunity to host the Olympics again. It is not unknown for us. It is not scary for us. Uh, and it is something that really was a tremendous impact on LA and will be again in 2024. You've referenced technology a couple of times. What's the tech impact or the tech benefit to the games in, in, in LA? Well, the, the games are changing. Um, the games that happen uh, in six months in Rio will look different, I think, than the games wherever they are in 2024. And a lot of that's going to be driven by technology. Uh, the experience for the fans, the experience for the athletes. You know, we believe that given the infrastructure we have, we can create the most personalized experience ever for athletes. Uh, and you think about what that means. Uh, it's pretty extraordinary. You think about what excuse me, what transportation is going to look like in 2024. I um, mean, we joke about autonomous cars, but in 2024, I don't think it's much of a joke. I think it's going to be about how many there are and how do we leverage them for the good of the games and the good of the city. So technology will have a big impact. And then the last piece is the environmental. Um, because we don't have to build anything, we can spend seven years building, you know, we don't just talk about energy neutral. We are going to deliver an energy positive games in 2024. 
how? Stay (laughs) stay tuned. We have a good plan in place, and uh, we don't want to let our our competitors know too much about our plans. So as we roll out our our deliverables over the next uh, year, we'll let people know. Before we open up to questions, um, tell me about bringing the NFL back to L.A. Well, uh, look, it ultimately had to take what exactly happened, which is an owner of an existing team had to, with his or her own checkbook, make that decision to move. It could never have been and never did happen because... Uh, LA didn't have a team or a site. So Mm -hmm. an independent person specking a stadium or trying to uh, move a team to LA without owning a team was almost impossible. And so what Stan Kroenke did is extraordinary. Uh, He's gonna build the most expensive and technologically advanced stadium in the world uh, in LA. And that will be host to not just an NFL team and maybe two, uh, but to all sorts of events, whether it's Final Fours or conventions or concerts or soccer matches. Uh, And it's gonna be extraordinary. And, uh, And what's it gonna mean for you in your business? Well, look, I, I, um, in our business, uh, in the Olympic bit, it'll be good for an Olympics, for sure. And in our business, I think it's just another validation of LA's place in the world and in, in the sports. Good opportunity to open up for questions. I can keep going if they're not. Here's one right here. I'm Jennifer from KCRW. So, Casey, I want to ask you, um, eSport athletes, is that your next frontier? Um, so, eSports is interesting. Uh, how... Um, I would say the business model is still being invented and created. Uh, I sit on the board of Activision, so I have an interesting perspective on that. Uh, obviously, it's gotten a lot of a noise and awareness lately. I'm not sure that you'll see us representing athletes, but the whole dynamic of leagues, teams, rights, athletes, rights holders, IP, uh, is still pretty undefined. And I think uh, once that gets defined, you'll see a lot more clarity on where there's real opportunity. But to date, it's sort of in the wild, wild west. But do you want in on that business? Uh, yeah, I think there's, there are interesting opportunities. I'm not sure it's representing athletes, though. Hi, David Lang from Time Warner Cable. Uh, do you think, given the costs that are going into the sports business these days, uh, the industry risks becoming a luxury good at some point, both live in person and in media? Um, hard for me to say it's a luxury good, although I will tell you that, you know, well over 90% of most people experience most sports on television. Um, and I think relative to what people pay, uh, the value they get is pretty extraordinary. Um, uh, I think rising ticket prices is a concern for sure. Uh, and teams and leagues have to be certain not to do that. Ironically, those two are related in the sense that the more revenue is derived from media rights, the less pressure there is on ticket prices to fill in the revenue gap. So that in a funny way, they're connected. Um, uh, because you have obviously a lot more people to spread the cost out over on the media side. Uh, I certainly don't think of it as a luxury item, and I certainly hope it never gets there. But, do, I mean, if costs keep on rising, as you predict they will, I mean, they can only go up so high without pricing consumers out of the market. Or, or, you've, or you create more value for those consumers, and you can derive more revenue for the consumers who want to pay more for a special version of that product. Um, and before we go to another question, the issue of season tickets. I keep hearing about all this research showing that millennials are less interested in committing to a season than any other consumers. How problematic is that for, for these, these teams? Well, it's, 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 it's not. I mean, look, the sports ticket pricing is, is goofy. Uh, um, it's antiquated. Um, I don't believe um, ticket prices should be based on opponent or day of the night, though. Uh, so when you talk about variable pricing, most people point to Thursday night against a bad team is cheaper than Saturday night against a good team. And I think that's a mistake because, frankly, all those teams are tied together and they're partners. I think pricing should be based on consumer habits. Um, 
you know, you can go uh, to five games a year, but when you go, you buy everyone, you take a, a jersey, you buy all the expensive food, you drink beers, and that's great. Your tickets should almost be free. My tickets, I'm the cheap guy. I go, I take my brown paper bag with my peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I go to every game, but I don't buy anything. My tickets should be full cost. Uh, the tragedy of sports ticketing today is that we don't know anything about the people in the stands. We don't know how they got their tickets, where they bought them, how much they paid, what else they do when they're in the building. And think about that. In 2016, we don't know anything about anybody at any sporting event, period. And that's staggering. Um, and so the opportunity to drive more value for fans and more revenue for teams comes from that information. And are you working with any of those companies that are... There, we're not, per se, um, but there are lots of companies trying to deal with that. I think Ticketmaster will be an important piece of that, given that they, in many of the cases, own the manifest of these buildings. Uh, and that's an important first step. Obviously, ticketing is the only necessary transaction. Once you buy a ticket, all the other things happen. If you don't buy a ticket, none of the other things happen. Um, you know, I think that's a part of the industry that needs to accelerate quickly. Alex Krugelov from Smile Time. Casey, you represent a lot of athletes, but you also know quite a bit about the owner side of the business, and you've dabbled in that as well. If you look at the different leagues, the NBA, the NFL, there's a dramatically different sort of power distribution between the owners and the athletes. And some of them are up for renegotiations where certain rights will sort of go back and forth. Do you have a strong point of view that's a holistic point of view as far as athletes versus owners? Well, I, I, I think the first mistake is I'm not sure it's at, it should be thought of as athletes versus owners. Um, I think they should be thought of as partners in a common enterprise. And, and frankly, if you look at uh, what the two leagues you referenced, the NBA and the NFL, have done is they've generated more revenue for the, for the common enterprise, and that common enterprise has benefited both athletes uh, and owners. Uh, and so I think that hopefully the days of owners and athletes uh, going to war uh, for pennies is over, and what they should be doing is working together to create lots of dollars uh, for their common good. And I think you've seen that trend in the last bunch of years. Uh, it doesn't mean there won't be fights about very specific issues about how the systems work, and there should be. And there will always be both sides that want changes. Um, but this is a business enterprise, and the athletes and the owners are partners in that, and they share in those upside and, and share in that opportunity. We're totally out of time, but I'm going to do one really short last question. I'll keep it quick. Casey Lucas from Bloomberg. Um, with the NFL auctioning off those Thursday night streaming rights right now, who would you bet wins that auction? And if you were the NFL and cost were no object, who would you want to win it? Answer in 140 characters. Yes, I, I can't answer because I'm representing one of the bidders. Uh, so I won't answer that question. But I will tell you, my guess is the NFL is going to focus on a partner who... Uh, helps their business meaningfully. I don't think, relatively speaking, the dollars will, should be driving their decision. I think they're gonna make a decision based on brand and partner and platform and reach um, and, and building a better experience. And I don't think it's about incremental dollars because relative to the rest of the dollars the NFL is getting from the media rights, it's, it's a rounding error. And remember that you do have a, a hand in that game. <laughs> Casey Wasserman, thank you so much. Really Thanks. appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Recode Replay. 